Hey, Pastor Justin here, and I want to welcome you to our verse-by-verse teaching through God's Word. We hope and pray that this is a huge resource to you, and it helps you grow in your knowledge of Jesus Christ and the Bible. Also, want to encourage you, if this is your only place where you're being fed, go and be a part of the local church. We love being a part of your life, but it's no substitute for being a part and serving in the local church. Also, if this has blessed you, we would love to hear about it. There's an email that's listed below, and if you send us an email and just tell us how God's Word has changed your life, it would bless us tremendously. Also, would you pray and consider maybe helping us continue this ministry and getting God's Word all over the world? You can do that by going to newheightsohio.com and click on the Giving tab. Anything helps, and we appreciate it. God bless. Well, I'm telling you what, I have had an incredible week. I hope you have. And uh, whether it was a great week for you or if it was a difficult week for you, you were in the right place this morning. So, man, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit is moving in my own life as I pray and prepare sermons and I'm praying for this church. And it's just been an incredible week for me. It really, it truly has. I'm telling you, it all started almost seven, seven days ago. Somebody told me there's a revival taking place at James River Assembly of God Church there in Ozark, Missouri and encouraged me to jump online and watch some of the videos. And, and that's what I've been doing all week. And really, I, man, I, I got to tell you, I feel like I have been baptizing the Holy Spirit all over again. The Holy Spirit is amazing, right? I'm telling you. And then today, as I, as I, or this last week, as I was preparing for this message, this one's really close to my heart. If you've been here the last two years, you know that I absolutely love the Bible. And today's sermon is all about the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, open up to 2 Peter. Uh, we're going to be looking at chapter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to finish this chapter. We're looking at verses 16 through 21. The title of the sermon today is Rooted in God's Word. Amen? I remember uh, the day I graduated from Central Bible College like it was yesterday. This was one of the the most important days of my life, second only to my wedding and, you know, to the, to the births of my children, all three of them. But this was a very, very special day. It's one that I remember, like I said, like it was just yesterday. Not many days stick out like this one for me. It was just special. Our speaker that day preached a message that has stuck with me for all of these years. He preached on finishing strong. And I remember I thought it was weird that he, did, that he decided to preach on finishing strong because it, in many ways we had already finished and we were just beginning this new phase in our life. But that was what he decided to preach on, finishing strong. We were all being commissioned that day into a new season. And if you've never been to a Bible college graduation, it really is, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's not like any other graduation. It's commissioning all of those Uh, those grads into full-time ministry. But I remember at one point the speaker said, I need you to look to your left, now look to your right, because statistics say that these people will not be in ministry in 10 years. I thought, what a downer, Debbie thing to say, like on our graduation day. But I did take a mental note, and I looked to my left, and I looked to my right. Within 10 years, both those graduates sitting next to me were not in full-time ministry. Peter 
And that's a sad reality, but that, that's the truth. What he, was, what he was telling us is it's not really how you start, but how you finish. And, and Peter, who wrote this epistle, he was very aware that in the Christian life, what matters most is not how we start, but how we go on. Okay, he was very distressed, burdened. I would even say Peter was ticked off when he wrote this. Ticked off that some false teachers were getting into the church and they were making a big mess. This is a very intense letter that Peter's written. Peter was very emotional because he was concerned with his reader's future. And Peter, for some reason, knew that his life was coming to an end. He knew he didn't have much time left. That's, in fact, that's why he says in verse 14, he says, since I know the putting off of my body will be soon. Somehow God had revealed to Peter that his time was coming. And the Apostle Paul, he had a very similar experience. You guys will remember in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6, this is what Paul said, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. In fact, that letter that Paul had written was actually called Paul's Testament or his will because he wrote the letter and it was a warning in light of his coming death. So think about that for a minute, how important a, a will or a last testament is, right? These are the very last words that somebody's gonna say and they're usually gonna carry a lot of weight. I remember my dad in 1997 when he was first diagnosed with his brain tumor, they said they didn't know what was going on. They felt it was too late to remove it. By the time they had found it, it was the size of a softball. And so they said he's got maybe, maybe the rest of this night he's going to actually be aware of what's going on. So they told my mom, have all your kids come in and say goodbye to him now. And so each of us, one by one, we went in by ourselves and we had a chance to kind of just say goodbye to dad. And I remember I was 14 years old and so I went in and there was so much, what do you say to somebody you love so much and you know this is gonna be your very last conversation. And so I poured my heart out to him. I said, dad, I love you so much. You've been an incredible dad. My life is so good because of so many things that you did. You're my hero. And I just, I mean, I poured my heart out to my dad and he looked at me and I'll never forget. He looked at me and he said, did the Sonics beat the Lakers? I said, Dad, did you hear anything I just said? And he goes, the Sonics, did they beat the Lakers? I go, the Sonics didn't even play the Lakers today. I go, Dad, do you know, do you know what's going on? I go, I go, Dad, who's the president? He said, uh, Jimmy Carter. I said, what's your wife's name? He said, Hillary. Oh, okay, Dad's confused. He's married to Paula, and Bill Clinton was the president. So, you know, he, he, he didn't understand. that The good thing is God gave him nine more years. So the doctors were wrong and I was able to say good, goodbye to my father. But Peter is writing a te, uh, his, uh, his last testament here, a will. And some, some wills from the first century have actually survived. And we kind of get this glimpse into the world in those days. And it's pretty cool to see just how similar the wills of those days are to Peter's letter that we're reading right now. In fact, in a will during the first century, the speaker knows that he's about to die. The speaker gathers around him as followers or a similar audience. The speaker often impresses upon his audience and the, the need for them to remember his teachings and his example. The speaker makes predictions of the future. He gives moral guidelines. And Peter does some of those exact same things in his letter. He announces his departure and he directs the letter to his followers. He predicts some stuff that's about to go down and he kind of tells them how to live through some of those things he's about to predict. He's writing with this sense of urgency, and we need to keep this in mind as we're looking at this passage today. Peter's happy they're following Jesus. I guess in our modern-day vernacular, he's, he's happy that they call themselves Christians. He's happy about it. 
But he isn't really content with just how they start. He wants them to finish strong. And listen, it amazes me that so many people who call themselves Christians don't give a whoop about how they live their life as long as they get to heaven. But when we take that approach to life, all I care about is getting to heaven. I mean, that's a good start. That's going to get somebody on the right path, right? And, and that person will get to heaven if they put their faith in Jesus. But if we live our entire life with that attitude, we have this low view of what God did for us by dying on the cross and offering us salvation. We have a low view of God and his mission and his purpose, and we even have a low view of, uh, of his glory and his church here on earth when we take that approach to life. Peter tells us that Christians need, need to live in awe and inspiration of God. This is the secret sauce, I guess, if you will. This is what gives God the greatest glory when we live with that kind of reverence towards God and our lives are truly transformed. That's what gives God glory. That's what makes the gospel so attractive to the world. Did you hear me? That's what makes the gospel so attractive to the world. Not a program, not a gimmick, transformed lives. Lives that are truly following Jesus and have been truly changed. That's what makes the gospel attractive to a world. It's God's design for growth in the church. That's why my wife's grandpa used to tell me it's the Holy Spirit magnet. It's you need the Holy Spirit to draw on people in this world. You can't do it with anything else you're going to do. It's got to be the Holy Spirit. Our problem today is we don't really understand the simplicity of this. We complicate it. It's so easy for churches today to stray away from the truth. And we, we start ignoring biblical truths that we had once learned, that were once practiced, were once taught, once even preached. And unfortunately, the church morphs into a group of people who are consumers. And you've heard me say this over and over. I'm going to be repetitive. We, we morph into a group of people who are consumers instead of servants. In consuming instead of communing, spectators instead of participators, customers instead of disciples. And guess what? We end up producing people who can't stand. And this is what Peter's going to say. He wants these believers to stand in this onslaught of persecution that's about to come their way. He's telling his readers that they, they can't stand when hardship comes because sermonettes are producing Christianettes. Hmm. Programs have taken the place of power and gimmicks have taken the place of the gospel and the church. And Peter here in his last testament, he's going to beg, he's going to plead with his readers, do not forget God's word. Of all the things that he could tell his readers, it's this. Do not forget God's word. Do not stray away from it. Know his word and stick to it. The church is supposed to be building up true believers who are strong in the understanding of the Bible. The preaching of the word of God in our day and age, we've, we've, it's been devalued. It's become more about entertainment. Entertainment's taking center stage. And why? Because we have a higher view of man than we do of God. The church should not be taking its cues from culture. You hear me? We don't take our cues from culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe in being culturally relevant. I do. I think it's important to know what's going on around. You've heard me say this. I've, I've literally cut and copied and pasted this next part of my sermon from another sermon that I've preached to you. I'm being repetitive and I'm doing it on purpose. I think that we can study culture and it can help us in some ways. We can be like Paul. We could use culture to our advantage. We can use it to further the word of God. But the moment, 
And I mean it. The moment we allow it to replace the word of God and we say, you know what, we don't really need, we don't really need good doctrine anymore. We don't need to teach through God's word because it's not attractive to someone who doesn't come from a religious background. Can I just stop too for a minute? <laughs> Nothing about the Bible is attractive to someone who's not a Christian. Nothing. There's nothing that we preach or teach or do that's attractive except for a changed life. They see this changed life. That's attractive. They, they're curious. They want to know what's different. We can't, we can't have these things in place of God's word because it doesn't do a better job. It doesn't do a better job than, than God's word or the Holy Spirit. Churches are becoming more seeker-sensitive, but very believer-insensitive. You guys have heard of Willow Creek. Uh, one point was the largest church in America, the largest evangelical church in America. It's based out of uh, Chicago. Uh, they had this pastor, Pastor Bill Hybels, and the church has done incredible things. That's why I'm going to, I don't want you to think I'm criticizing the church. I'm actually going to read what they've had to say, okay? Because I'm not criticizing. I've, I've met people that have come out of Bill Hybels' church saved, and it, they've done an incredible job. But this is very fascinating because no church has done more to research and develop this seeker-sensitive service. They, they are, they've done so much to research and develop it. And, and they began to tailor their church services towards what they would call seekers 30 years ago. Now, this was in 2008, 30 years prior to 2008. And it's, what's interesting is that in 2008, they published the results of a four-year survey on how effective they had been in fulfilling Jesus's call to make disciples. Not to fill up the church, not to fill up the seats, but to make disciples. Their conclusion was that, was that after three decades, again, I want to remind you, this is one of the most successful churches in America, according, I guess, however you deem success, but their conclusion was that after three decades, they needed to. It was a necessity to shift from seeker-sensitive services to services which focus on enabling believers to grow in their faith. From seeker-sensitive to believer-sensitive. This is Willow Creek, one of the largest churches in America. At one point, I think they ran over 30,000 people in their weekend services. And, and, and the conclusion was that they came to was this. We can't serve two masters. Listen. If their focus is always going to be trying to please seekers or ser serving warm milk only, then they're never going to grow disciples. This is their conclusion. I'm not putting words in their mouth. This is from their conclusion. Their discipleship was flighty. They used the word flighty. Church, listen to me. We desperately need a shift to believer-sensitive services because God can do a better job than we can at speaking to a cold heart. You know, when Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, what, what's he eager to do? He says, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. <laughs> Is that something? Do those words not jump off the pages of your Bible? Paul got it. He understood it. Paul knew that the gospel is more than a gateway for non-Christians to pass through. This is the main theme of Peter's second letter, his last testament. The Bible is a life support machine. That's what Peter's going to hammer home all throughout this letter. The, Bible, the gospel gets us started, but it's also what sustains us. 
Okay, we never graduate from the, the gospel. I love how J.D. Greer says it. He goes, the gospel, however, is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It's the pool itself. It's not only the way we begin in Christ, it's the way we grow in Christ. It's pretty good. So we should be preaching the gospel every week in every service because if Jesus spoke of the whole scripture as testifying about him, that's in John chapter 5, verse 39, we can, know that, that without, we can know with absolute certainty that we are preaching the text wrongly if we aren't preaching his word. If Jesus isn't in our sermons, we are not preaching the gospel. It's really that simple. We need all, and I mean all, of scripture to make disciples. If we neglect certain parts of it because we're worried that seekers won't come, well, then the quality of discipleship is just going to be terrible. I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow his example. And when the crowds were the biggest in Jesus' time, listen to me, when the crowds were the biggest, he preached the hardest. In Luke chapter 14, 25, we're told that large crowds followed Jesus. Why were they large? Why were large crowds following Jesus? Let me tell you, because in Luke 4, he healed all kinds of people. In Luke 5, he healed a leper and a paralyzed man. In Luke 6, he healed a withered hand. In Luke 7, he raised the widow's son from the dead. In Luke 8, he calmed a storm, healed a woman who barely touched his robe and cast out demons. And in Luke 9, he fed 5,000 miraculously. That's why he had the largest crowd. But listen, here's where it gets really interesting. He had the largest crowd of his ministry at that time. At that point in his ministry, I'm telling you what, if he lived today, church growth people would be saying, Jesus, keep giving the people what they want. You're going to have a mega church. This is incredible. And you know what he does when he gets this crowd? He preaches his hardest sermon. He, he turns to the crowd and he says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus, what are you doing? You had your largest crowd. And you just dwindled it. They all left. Nobody wanted that message. And that's what Jesus did when he had his largest crowd ever. Think about that. Huge crowd, a huge following, and he preaches this. Following me is not about you. He tells his crowd, it's not about, that he's, he, he, Jesus is to be loved most. This is not following Jesus as a footnote to your already happy life. He's not the cherry on top of your Sunday. He's not a homeboy or a good luck charm. He's to be your God. And you're to serve him and follow him. He's the king of kings, Lord of lords. He's the son of God who now ensures that superficial followers are thinned out of the masses by laying out the hard truth and he must be everything to them. There are no middle ground disciples. Real followers of Jesus run towards that truth. Fake followers run from it. And Jesus was gonna draw a line in the sand and he was gonna preach that message when his crowd was the largest. I love how 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says it. I'm gonna read from the message. It says this, you're going to find that there will be times when people will have no stomach for solid teaching, but will fill up on spiritual junk food, catchy opinions that tickle their fancy. They'll turn their backs on truth and chase mirages, but you keep your eye on what you're doing, accept the hard times along with the good, keep the message alive, do a thorough job as God's servant. Man, 
Peter says, be careful. Be careful, church. If there ever was a message we needed to hear during the time that we find ourselves today, it's this. Please, please listen to the words that Peter penned, inspired by the Holy Spirit for the readers in that century and for us today. Peter's gonna call us to remember. Remember, because if we don't, we won't stand strong. Sin will creep in and we will be weak. So Peter, stressing the importance of God's word, gives us three affirmations about God's word. Here it is. Number one, verses 12 through 15. God's word lives and abides. Lives and abides. Look with me, verse 12. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. Okay, so what has Peter just done is he's, he's contrasting men who die, he's referring to his own death and God's word that lives forever. That's what he's done here. Three times Peter tells him to remember. Verse 12, to remind you. Verse 13, by way of reminder. And verse 15, to recall these things. Three times Peter tells us to remember. What things does Peter want want him to remember? What things does Peter want us to remember? The things he's writing down for him. Okay, he wasn't giving them oral tradition here. He's giving them the written word. This is the written word of God. Peter knew he was gonna die very soon. He had this sense that his time was coming to an end. That's why he could say, as, as long as I live in this body. In some of your translations, instead of the word body, it actually uses the word tent. Peter uses this word to stress the truth that our bodies are only temporary. The one thing that every single person in this room has in common is we're all gonna die. Okay. I, I've got to do it. I'm not a Star Wars fan. I'm a Star Trek fan. So here it is. Captain Kirk, I'm going to quote him. How we deal with death is at least as important as how we deal with life. The great Captain Kirk. There you have it. <laughs> Tell you what, death is an exodus, by the way. In fact, he even uses that word in verse 15. In our translation, the word is departure in the ESV, but the Greek definition is it's an exodus. Death is the separation from the soul and the spirit from the physical body. A lot can be said about death, but I'm going to say this. Death is not a cessation of existence. So when you, when you die, you simply change your address. You move, up, move out of your tent into a body made by hands, eternal in the heavens. You are waiting for the resurrection of the rapture when you will be reunited with the body. That's what death is. And this is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, for our bodies or for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. He then goes on again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 8, and he says, yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies for then we will be at home with the Lord. And Peter uses the word body. Some of your translations say tent. He uses this familiar metaphor of the human body being like what they in those times would have definitely understood. They would have understood this idea of a tent because there were so many nomads in those days and they would literally live and travel in tents. They were temporary shelters on their way from one place to another. And so when a person dies, it's like taking down one's tent. It's, it's a camping metaf metaphor for us today, okay? Death is folding up the tent and, and moving on. Have you guys ever been camping and camped in a tent? I've done it a few times. I did it as a kid, and I've only done it a, a few times as an adult. But for one ministry, I don't know how I got convinced at a church in Arizona to go camping. 
camping for a week, not in the camper, not in a trailer, but in a tent. I had to sleep in a tent for seven days. I've never been camping again. And Bill Black, uh, any time that I've gone up to the Royal Ranger camp out, Bill Black has done a wonderful job of getting me a, a little cabin. <laughs> I'm a wimp. Man, tents are not supposed to be permanent. After that seven-week camping trip in Arizona, sleeping on the hard floor in that stinking tent, I couldn't wait to get back to my house. When I walked through the home and, and walked through the front door of my home, I was like, ah, oh, <laughs> a house. They're meant to be temporary, okay? Death is, is not the cessation of existence. You're camping here. But when you die, listen, you're gonna go to hell or heaven. Hell or heaven, no other options, hell or heaven. So please, please, please be ready to die. Peter was ready. He even makes a reference in verse 14 when he said, as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. You remember that story in John 21, 18? You remember what Peter's talking about here? This is what Jesus said to Peter. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus was implying that Peter was going to be crucified. And, and of course, tradition tells us he was. He requested to be crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same manner of his Savior. He felt unworthy to do that. Psalms 90.12 says this, Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. In other words, the wisest way to approach life is to remember the reality of death. So Peter, knowing he's going to die soon, wants to do something for the believers. And what is it? He wants to leave them with the word of God. So he writes to them, First and Second Peter. And you remember in the same context of Jesus telling Peter how he was going to die in John 21, what did Jesus also tell him? You remember that? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so now, and many believe, and I think rightly so, that Peter influenced Mark to write the Gospel of Mark. So Mark got all of his information from Peter, and so we've got the Gospel, that's the story of Jesus' life, and we've got First and Second Peter, where Peter's doing exactly what Jesus told him to do. He's feeding the sheep. He's feeding the sheep. That's why in verse 15, Peter says, and I make every effort so that after my departure, after my exit, after my death, you may be able to at any time recall these things. What a statement. What a statement. I mean, if you're taking notes, underline that because here's what Peter's saying. Men die, God's word lives forever. I'll die, but God's word lives forever. God's word is eternal. I love Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we've often heard the famous quote, the church of Jesus Christ is always one generation away from extinction. What a sobering reality that is. The Bible has to be taught to the next generation. The first biblical reference to national decline and generational apostasy is actually found in the book of Judges. And it's, it's one of the scariest parts of all the Bible. It depicts how rapidly people can deviate from their original principles and convictions. It was, it was during the glory days, the glory years of conquest. How many of you guys want glory days? How many of you want real revival in the church in America today? You want the Holy Spirit to move and touch lives and change lives. Here's the thing. Israel had experienced that. 
In fact, during the glory years, this is what it says. Uh, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works. They had experienced it all of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. That's in Judges chapter two, verse seven. But once this founding generation had passed away, these are probably the scariest words in all of the scripture. It says this, another generation arose after, after them who did not know the Lord, know the work which he had done for Israel. Most scholars are gonna agree that this was probably the very next generation which composed of the children and the grandchildren of the founding generation. Think about that. The fact that they did not know the Lord or the miraculous events that God had performed on, on their behalf. You know what that is? It's a sad commentary on their lack of biblical education. Joshua and his contemporaries as incredible leaders as they were, they failed to teach the younger generations the greatest lessons of God's providence and protection. They didn't pass on the promises the people had made to follow the Lord. And the results were catastrophic. They ushered in a period of such intense trial and such intense persecution. Listen, church, if we fail to teach biblical values to our children and our grandchildren, that could very well happen here. We're one generation away. We will die, but the word of the Lord will live forever. This is what we need to be serious about in the church today, a commitment to his word, a commitment to the Bible. In verse 16, he moves. He moves to the second affirmation. He says, God's word is sure and steadfast. Look with me at verse 16. It says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Verse 18, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. I love that. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. God's word is sure and steadfast. Experience fades, but God's word remains. Experience fades, but God's word remains. What Peter's just done all the way in verses 16 through 18 is he's describing this experience that he had and an incredible experience he had, all right? And then, and then in verse 19, what he does is he explains that God's word is more reliable and dependable than even his own experience. Now, I know I'm preaching to a Pentecostal church, and I just told you, I opened up with, man, I feel like I've had revival in my own heart this week, baptized in the Holy Spirit. I almost feel like all over again. <laughs> but, but listen to what Peter's saying here is, he explains that God's word is more reliable, more reliable and more dependable than even his own experience. And, and guess what? His experience, we know it was legit. <laughs> it's interesting that he's gonna say that. Look with me at the word myths. The Greek word is muthos. The word was always used in the New Testament in a negative or a derogatory sense. So what he's saying here is that when we declared the power of God, it wasn't with myths. 
And, and honestly, whenever this word was used, it usually referred to pagan mythology. You guys remember studying these, the Greek myths in, in high school? They're kind of bizarre. They're a little different. Um, they don't really have any real historical significance, but they do make really good movies, right? Okay, Peter's, Peter's saying that the Bible is based on historical places, actual people, certain dates. In fact, dates are often given all throughout the Bible. He's going to talk about his own personal experience. He's going to testify it was a verifiable event, but he's but Peter is saying they saw, they heard that when they were with him on the holy mountain, that's the transfiguration, by the way. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, I saw this with my own eyes, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mountain. He saw it. He witnessed it. The holy mount, as he would call it. It's one of the highlights of Peter's life. Jesus was transformed before his very eyes. I, mean, I, I can't even imagine what Peter saw on that mountain. And in that experience, he saw the face of Jesus glowing like the sun and his garments in dazzling white. And the two men from the past showed up, Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. He allowed them to see his deity that day. They saw the humanity of Jesus, but that day they got to see his deity. And, and he says, it's good that we're here. That's what Peter says. It's good that we're here. And then the, the text actually says that Peter, not knowing what to say... <laughs> said this, let's build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Here's free advice. When, when you don't know what to say, just keep quiet. I think that's, if you're, if you're taking notes, write that one down. That's a freebie, okay? The text actually says that. Peter, not knowing what to say, said this. When you don't know what to say, just, just be quiet. But that's what I love about Peter. <laughs> you can relate to him. Okay, and that's when, when, when he said that, God interrupts him. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Talk about an incredible experience to witness. That's what Peter means when he says, we heard. He was an eyewitness. And, and in a court of law, eyewitnesses, they're pretty important. They're a big deal. They're asked, they're asked this question, what did you see? They're cross-examined. How do you know that's exactly what you saw? Peter said, I was there. I saw this. I saw it. And I saw this preview of what's to come. Peter was given that opportunity. Why is Peter telling this story? Well, look at verse 19 because it tells us. Verse 19, it says, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He's referring to scripture here. And I don't want you to let this word prophetic get you all thrown off. Don't, don't let it get you derailed. He's talking about the spoken, written word of God. In this context, it's the Old Testament. He's saying we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, some people will interpret this to mean that the prophetic word is made more confirmed by our experience. And, and sometimes experience does that. But listen to me. Be very careful because it doesn't seem to fit the context here. All right? It doesn't seem to fit the entire context. I think what Peter's saying here is, is more fully confirmed than what we saw with our eyes and heard with our ears is the word of God. I think that's what Peter's saying. I think we would do well to understand it that way as far as our relationship to experience and the Bible is concerned. Truth, listen, truth is found in God's objective, steadfast word. Experience is subjective. Listen to me, church. We should never judge the Bible from our experience. 
but we should always judge our experience by the Bible. Okay? So experience, it's, it's good. Jesus, I, I've had some incredible encounters with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If I ever start experiencing things that don't line up with this, I have to judge my experiences based on this. You understand? Experience is okay, but it's subjective. Some of us Pentecostals, we don't like to hear that, but you really do need to listen to me today and hear me out. Mormonism. Wonderful people. Very, very sincere, but very sincerely wrong. And I know a lot of people are, you might get upset. Oh, Pastor Justin's going to bring in another religion. Uh, but, and I understand some people will squirm in their seats when the, when I start doing this, but Jesus said you're going to know the truth and the truth will set you free. I believe the truth is in the Bible and everything needs to be judged by scriptures. And, and I've been very close. I, some of my greatest, most closest friends are from the Mormon faith and we've had incredible talks and we'll always get to this one place where they're going to refer to something about uh, burning in their bosom, an experience that they had. And, and that is what they go back to every time. And and I just remember my last conversation with a, a dear friend that I had. And when he said this, he goes, well, I had this experience. I had a burning in my bosom, so I know this is the truth. Well, I've had a burning in my bosom before. Every time I go to Skyline, I get it. <laughs> Gold Star is even worse. <laughs> but, but we do some of the same things. Like some of us are saying, that's true. You can't, you can't judge based on experience. But we do some of the same things as Christians sometimes. I had a vision, I had a dream, and I'm, hear me out before you say Justin doesn't believe in this stuff. Hear me out. I had this vision, I had a dream, God spoke to me, he told me to do this. And, and this is what's so wonderful about Peter's words here, when he says we have a prophetic word more, more fully confirmed. You know, I remember as a little kid, there was revival happening at one of the churches I attend. I love revival, I love it. I believe in it. I'm praying for it. I want our altars filled. I want the power of the Holy Spirit moving and manifesting in our lives. We need it. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But I remember this preacher got up and he said, the Lord has spoken to me. I'll never, ever forget this. Sitting right in the front row, sitting next to this man. And next to him was the wife of somebody else. Both of them are married. I can't remember. They were going to do something after the service. That's why they're sitting. And he looks at the man and says, you're going to marry this woman. This woman's going to marry you and you're going to go to Africa. The problem is they're already married. But this prophet, this apostle said this. And that couple divorced, went to Africa and ended up getting a divorce a few years later. Look, <laughs> and I'm not saying it doesn't mean that God doesn't use people in the prophetic. Listen to me. That's not what I'm saying here. Just, just like we're born with natural abilities, spiritual gifts are imparted to us when we get saved. And subsequently, as the Spirit wills to, to use us for the benefit of the body of Christ. It, I believe in that. To be Pentecostal is essentially to be spiritually dependent. Okay? If God doesn't act, we fail. The promise and power of Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it's pretty vague and it applies to every aspect of the Christian life. The waters, I, I, I love Randy Hurst said this, the waters of the spirit need to be continually stirred and the gifts used daily and consistently, not accidentally not, or, or occasionally. And, and, and speaking gifts of prophecy and words of knowledge have a powerful, and I mean a powerful and penetrating anointing that can pierce the hardest of hearts faster than any other method. I have seen it. I have experienced it. I have, I have seen the Holy Spirit reveal mysteries that cut right to hidden issues that there's no way I would have ever known unless the Holy Spirit revealed. I've seen it. 
And I believe a church will dry up and become institutionalized and ceremonial without spiritual gifts. So we expect these gifts to flow in our members and in our gatherings. I want the Holy Spirit to move in our church. So church, listen to me. You go hard after a lifestyle of prayer and intimate worship because it's gonna cause you to experience a spirit-filled life. In fact, Father, we pray right now for the gifts of the Holy Spirit to be active in our church today. We need a fresh move of the Holy Spirit in our own lives personally and as a body corporately. So we are, we are freely inviting the Holy Spirit to do that. Amen? But anytime we experience someone claiming to be operating in these gifts, we need to check with God's word. This right here is the standard. This is the plumb line, okay? This is the rule. This is the authority. Every human being, by the way, has a source of authority. Even the ones who say they don't, they do. Atheists have a source. They may go to a textbook. Science might be their authority. But everybody has a source of authority. If it isn't the Bible, if it's not God's inspired word, then you cannot know for sure because you can be easily deceived. Your emotions can change. Visions are subjective and you can't base truth upon them. This is the only objective truth we can have. This is God's word. Our faith is not built upon emotion, experience, or even visions or dreams. It's built upon the Bible, okay? Now, the last thing here in verse 19 through 21, God's word is light and it's spirit given. We have the, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place till the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. I've read it a few times, I know. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, and for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So much doctrine packed into these verses. But I want to summarize them for you, okay? The Bible has its origin from God. It's unique. It's like no other book. In fact, knowing this first actually means this is a utmost importance. This is a primary important point as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a nautical term that was used of wind filling the sail of a sailboat and carrying it over sea. You know, I love it when he says, when he says a lamp shining in a dark place. Here, here's the truth, church. The world's getting darker. <laughs> darker and dark. I, I telling you, I can't even watch certain cartoons anymore with the kids because there's a message behind it. But God's word is a lamp shining in a dark place. So as the world gets darker, God's word shines brighter. I love Psalms 19, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A light to my path. I love it. I just got a new vacuum cleaner and it's the coolest thing in the world because it's got headlights. Never had a vacuum with headlights. I can vacuum in the dark if I want. And I did it last night. I made Asher shut off all the lights in the house because I wanted to show him how cool his vacuum is. And, and at the end of it, I go, isn't this cool? He goes, yeah, but why would you want a vacuum in the dark? I, it was a good question. I said, well, I don't necessarily want to, but if I have to, I can. <laughs> I'm grateful for his word. His word has always been a light for my path. And as the world gets darker and darker, we're more desperate for God's word to light our path. That's where we are as a nation right now. I'm no prophet, but it's where we are. We need God's 
truth in our marriages, in our families, for our churches, our communities, our nations. America's greatest need right now is return back to God and his word. That's it. We need laws that reflect his word. We need policies that reflect God's word. We need a light and a lamp in this culture and this age. We can't right now even define marriage or gender. We need God's truth in our, in our church and in, in our community. Man, God, bring us back to your word. We repent that we've strayed away from your word. We've not prioritized it like we should. It's not of utmost importance in our nation and our church. We're paying the price. God, forgive us. Bring us back to your word. Bring us back to your word. Verse 20, it says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What does that mean? Does that mean we can't read the Bible and interpret it? No, that's not what it means. It can be read. It can be understood. So what is he saying? Well, read the next verse, verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I already told you what that word carried meant. God superintended the human authors, so using their own personalities, they compose without error the very words of Scripture. The Bible is a revelation of God. Does, it does, does not come from man. It comes from God. Some of you said, but you just said that men wrote it. I did, but they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. New Heights Church, we're, we're an Assemblies of God church. And, and one of our fundamental truths is the Scriptures are inspired. That's the scriptures, both Old and New Testament are verbally inspired of God and the revelation of God to man, the infallible authoritative rule of faith and contact. That's one of our conduct. That's one of our fundamental truths. Now, what does inspired mean? Well, it's not natural inspiration because I can listen to a certain song or watch a certain movie and I'm left inspired by it, right? It's not what we mean when we say the Bible's inspired. We're talking about divine inspiration. God did not tell Paul or any of the other authors to get a pen, start writing, and, and, and we don't mean that they were involuntarily were moved to write the Bible. It's not like their hands were controlled by a spirit and they couldn't control it and they were just writing everything down. It's not mechanical dictation or conceptual inspiration. Do you know that some people believe the Bible's given by inspiration from God, but only the concepts? <laughs> how do you convey concepts without words? The words aren't inspired. How can the concepts be inspired? Okay, inspiration means the very words and every word is given by the inspiration of God. That's what scholars would call the verbal plenary inspiration. It's what we believe. Verbal meaning the words, plenary meaning all of them. It's what we believe in the assemblies. The Bible, all of the words, they're given by God, by inspiration from God. I love how theologian Charles Ryrie defines inspiration. He says this, God's superintendence of the human authors of scripture so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. You know, I'll close with this. The writer of Psalms 119 says that the word of God has more value to him than thousands of gold and silver pieces. That's what uh, Psalms 119.72 says. He even says that he holds his own life lightly, but he clings to the word like a life raft. Psalms 119.109. Man, I wonder, I wonder what it would take for us if, to honestly say that about the Bible, that it's our life raft. In fact, because I don't think the problem, the problem isn't that we don't know how valuable the Bible is. The problem is that we, we've never brought our practice in line with our beliefs. I wonder today if what would happen if I offered somebody $5 million, 
$5 million. I'm gonna give you $5 million. All you have to do is never pick up your Bible again. You can't read it, can't talk about it. You can't listen to anybody else talk about it or preach about it, teach on it. You can't, you're gonna, $5 million right now, you, you, you just take the Bible out of your life completely. Man, I hope that everybody here would say never, no way. But think about that. You've just identified the Bible as an asset worth over 5 million bucks. Is there any other $5 million asset you would simply ignore? I mean, man, if somebody came up to, to me and said, I'll give you a million dollars for your house. That's okay. Let's do this. I don't care about the sentimental value. Any, I mean, a million bucks. But if somebody came up and offered me five, 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 million to, to never read the Bible again, I'd tell them to get lost. Shows us the value that we place on the word. So why aren't we devouring the Bible? Why are churches putting such little emphasis on the word of God? Let me make it personal instead of going at, at churches. What level of importance does the Bible have in your life? in your family's life. Parents, if you found out that there was, there was a predator in your neighborhood and you let your kid go out and play without supervision, guess what? You'd be a really bad parent. You'd be a bad parent. And here's the scary thing is scripture tells us that there is an enemy and he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for people to destroy. Our kids are on his hit list. And our only hope, our only hope is the Bible. <laughs> The church is under attack. We've got an enemy. He's busy. He's trying to distort the truth and he's doing a pretty good job at it. He's lying about marriage, gender, source of happiness. The liar is out to kill, steal, and destroy. And we need to stand up and stand strong, rooted in God's word. And the best way to confront a lie is to know the truth. In the Bible, we learn that Satan attacked Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He quoted scripture. You know what my biggest concern is? I know I'm going a little long. You know what my biggest concern as a pastor in 2022 is? Our kids. What are our kids gonna do when Satan attacks them? I hope, I hope, and I pray that they can do what Jesus did when he was attacked by Satan. I hope that they can quote scripture. And just so you know, Jesus had to learn the Bible too. Luke points that out that Jesus had to learn the Bible. In other words, guys, Jesus went to church. Jesus' parents made the Bible and church a priority. He did junior Bible quiz, okay? <laughs> make parents, make church a priority. Make the Bible a priority. Again, what's our priorities? Church and God's word needs to be our number one priority. And I get it, families are busy. Trust me, I know. But we as parents have to guard our kids' time and the amount of extracurricular stuff they're involved with. That's part of being a parent. That's part of being a good steward. Did you know kids are a gift from God? They're a gift. And the most important priority in my kid's life, speaking as Justin Hansen here, father of Allie, Asher, and Liam, the most important priority in my kid's life should not be, should not be sports or even extra, and they do all that, trust me. I'm not telling you not to do that. They do that. We may, it's our mission field extracurricular activities, but I need to care more about whether or not Allie, Asher, and Liam can talk through Second Peter or the Gospels. Honestly, I want my kids to be so saturated in the Bible that when life cuts them, they bleed the Bible. That's what I want for my kids. The Bible is light, it's life, it's salvation. I mean, think about this. This is God's spoken word to you. The God who created the universe wants to speak directly into your life. This is his word. 
Man, it was with a word that God created everything. We see it. It was a word that Jesus gave sight to the blind, healed the sick, forgave sins. It was a word that Jesus was raised from the dead. And by a word, Revelation says this, you ready? God will destroy the works of the enemy and make all things new. And it's by the word that God will free you from sin, from addiction, from a word that he can start to put your broken and jacked up life back together again. That's the God I serve. That's the way maker. From a word, he can make you whole. He can do it today. You might not prioritize the Bible or I, we might not prioritize it like we should. We struggle in this area, but I'm so grateful for the Bible because you know what? It's, it paints the reality. Psalms 19, it says, I have gone astray like a sheep. Seek your servant for I do not forget your commands. And all throughout the Psalms, there's this very real tension, real tension that exists. We read the Psalm and say, God, I hate double-mindedness and I love your word. But then later on, it's like he has a multiple personality disorder because he says, I'm double-minded and I love other things more. So what, does he love God's word? Does he not? What? Well, he definitely wants to love it, but he understands the reality that his heart is divided. But I love how he responds because this is how we can respond today. And I'll close like this. I'll close this. He prays to God. He begs and he pleads with God. He doesn't feel it because his heart's divided. He feels that there's this love and sometimes he doesn't want to love God's word. Sometimes he does. That's humanity. But what the psalmist does is he responds by prayer. He begs and pleads with God. That is what we should be doing every day. And so what I wanna do, I know I've gone a little longer today, but we're gonna close and I'm gonna open these altars and I'm gonna ask for the spiritual leaders in my church and whoever God is moving on your heart to come up and pray. And we're gonna pray that God would do that. Make us hungry for his word. Make us hungry for his presence. Cause I promise when we do that, God keeps his word. He's gonna show up and he's gonna do something that we cannot do. He's gonna start stirring our hearts. He's gonna start making us more hungry for his word and his presence. And guess what? That's what the world needs. That's what the world needs. So let's do this, let's close. I'm gonna close in prayer. I'm gonna open the altars. I'm gonna be here. I'm gonna be praying with anybody who wants prayer. My wife said this to me before, you know, in the beginning of the week, I told God, I spoke to a pastor and I said, I just feel like the Holy Spirit's doing so much in my life. And I don't, I don't feel like I sometimes know how to conduct it. He says, we'll just start going where the Holy Spirit leads. My wife, before worship, I get up here. She says, I feel like the Holy Spirit's saying this, today he wants to meet some of the needs of these people today wants to show up. So let's do that. Can we do that? Father God, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. We adore you. We are inviting the Holy Spirit to come into this service right now and take over. I know some people will have to go and that's okay. I know some people have places they need to be, but God, we want to, we just want to give an opportunity to respond to your word and allow the Holy Spirit to move in our lives. So for those who can stay, those who need to go, but they feel a stirring in their hearts as well. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you continue to stir their hearts and continue to move in their lives. But we want more of you. We want more of you, and that's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.